Welcome to the So We Speak podcast. I'm Terry Fakes, and today Cole and I would like to talk about an unusual article, unusual in this sense. Tim Keller wrote an op-ed in the New York Times on September 29th, 2018. It's certainly a little unusual to see the New York Times editorial page running anything by such a noted Christian. He wrote an article called, How Do Christians Fit Into the Two-Party System? And his conclusion is, they don't. He raises some great issues that are really timely for Christians, is how do we take our biblically grounded faith into the maelstrom of partisan politics in America. He has some interesting things to say, but we thought we'd provide a little background and flesh it out because Keller has actually written quite a bit on this topic of Christians interacting with the culture. Cole, maybe start it by sketching some of the things he's talked about before. So it's first of all, it's pretty admirable that Tim Keller gets published in the New York Times. They're antagonistic towards Christians. They don't have any respect for the Christian worldview. And yet, you know, this is kind of the marvel of Tim Keller. He's able to get his stuff published. I mean, I think this, Mm -hmm. it says at the bottom of this, that this is coming from his new book on Jonah that's supposed to release here soon. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's published several things in the New York Times before. He had that long interview in the New Yorker a year ago. And you see this even among Christian groups. One of the things I love about Keller is everybody points to Keller. Whether you agree with him theologically or not, he's really been able to rally kind of a mere Christian voice right. uh, around a lot of the issues. And I really like that about him. I think one of the things that he does really well, and you'd almost have to to have a church like Redeemer in New York City, is examine the relationship between Christians and culture. And I think that's kind of the foundation for what he's doing in this article, is building on a lot of the stuff that he's done previously on how we as Christians relate to what's becoming an anti-Christian or post-Christian culture. So I would say this this article is good, but it's not Keller's best on that topic. It's really trying to deal a little bit more with what we should think about political parties more than it is cultural engagement. I, I think the best thing that he's done on cultural engagement is his book Center Church. And Center Church is really a textbook on how to do church very theoretical, well-researched, lots of footnotes. I mean, it is difficult to get through, but well worth it. Very thoughtful. And in Center Church, Keller provides four models of cultural engagement. So he's building on Richard Niebuhr's five models of Christ against culture, Christ over culture, Christ right. contradictory to culture. And he he changes the, the phrases a little bit and uh, comes up with four models that I think are worth taking a look at as we talk about um, how, how Keller's going to approach this in the article. The first one is uh, the transformationist model. And this is really where Keller has identified himself over most of his history. This is a pretty consistent with Reformed evangelical Christians. What they essentially believe is that Christians will individually transform the culture through cultural engagement. Right. So a lot of the things that you read today are from this camp, and they talk about the value of your vocation as a Christian. So what what does it mean for a Christian to be a, insert your vocation, a plumber, a accountant, a surgeon, a right. teacher, a doctor, as a Christian, and that there is worth in vocation? So his book, Every Good Endeavor, is a really good explanation of what it means to be a Christian in your vocation. He integrates faith and work in the world, and that's the transformative method. 
Right. So this is you see a lot of this. Um, most of the Acts twenty nine reform guys are writing this kind of thing. The dignity uh-huh. of work. That's all the transformationist model. The second model would be the relevance model. So this one is a little bit analogical to Niebuhr's version of uh, Christ in culture. So we take the best things of the culture and we build on those in order to find common ground for Christians and non-Christians to work together. So in a lot of ways, this is really where the seeker church operates. They believe that if you take the best practices, if you take the best impulses, the best desires of the culture, and you begin to build on those from a Christian worldview, you can bring believers and non-believers together around important issues. So an example of this would be when Christians form broad coalitions with non-Christian groups to address things uh, in, in the social realm. So things like abortion, it's not just Christians that care about abortion, even though it's predominantly Christians, but whether that means looking to the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Catholics or even just non-religious conservative groups, think tanks, PACs that are interested in the issue of abortion, you can take the best of what we all believe and begin to engage the culture. The underlying assumption in this camp is that there's not that much difference when it comes to what's right and wrong between the church and the culture when it comes to social issues. Right. The third model would be the countercultural model. So this would be in the extreme what you see the Amish doing. So they believe that there's no overlap between Christians and the culture. And so they have separated themselves completely so that they can stay purified in their own communities. Kind of a modern day example of this that's not quite as radical would be the Benedict Option. So Rod Dreher uh-huh. has written extensively on this, the book, The Benedict Option, several blogs, and you know this comes up over and over and over again. How are Christians going to have anything to say if their beliefs and their culture and their children are cannibalized by a hostile culture? Right. So when it comes to education, when it comes to um, separation from the world, when it comes to maintaining holiness and purity, a lot of people default into a countercultural worldview, which means there's not any overlap. And so Christians have to protect themselves and surround themselves in order to be able to meaningfully engage culture at all. By the way, would you understand, and you, I'm not sure what I think about this, but Peterson, uh, Eugene Peterson in his book, The Contemplative Pastor, talks about one of the works of Christians is to be subversive in the culture. And I don't know if he would fit categorically into this, but if you're going to, from a countercultural point of view, if you're going to engage the culture, it's going to be to subvert it. Right. And I think that the transformationist or the countercultural mm-hmm. groups could embrace that. Of course, you'd have to have a pretty moderate countercultural group to go along with that. Right. I think the impulse of a lot of the countercultural uh, camps would be don't even bother engaging the culture. So that would be what we see from the Amish. That's what you see in some ways from fundamentalist Christians. So if you look at somebody, uh, let's take like Jerry Falwell, for example, who predominantly is critiquing the culture. Now, yes. granted, we, we'll talk about him later when it comes to Trump and Christians' relationship with Trump, but he's predominantly critiquing the culture. He's pr- predominantly writing off the culture as having anything productive to do with Christians. That would be a countercultural response. Historically, probably what everybody would uh, resonate with would be the Qumran community. The people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls lived out by themselves in a community by the Dead Sea, waiting for the world to literally go to hell. Yes. 
so it's that kind of an idea, and it's been around a long time. Absolutely. Yeah, you think of the Puritans, they probably fall into that category. A lot of the founding of the American colonies was built on this kind of assumption, that we have a city on a hill, and you need to purify it, and you need rules where everybody gets mm-hmm. to be a Christian, and then... Uh, People would differ on how that translates into impacting the culture, but the focus is on your own community, first and foremost. Right. So the fourth one would be the two kingdoms approach, and this is the classic Lutheran position. So Luther is an advocate that you have two separate kingdoms. You have the kingdom of the church on the one hand, and then you have the kingdom of uh, the culture on the other, and that these two are separated, and they don't really cross outside of the fact that people are members of both. Right. So on the one hand, you have people who go to church, you have the church making its own rules, you have the church doing discipleship and spiritual matters, and then during the week you have a job that you go to. And your goal, you know, Luther famously said, what does it mean to be a good shoemaker? Well, make a good shoe and sell it at a good price. That's, right. that's what your life looks like in that kingdom. So when it comes to the two-kingdom approach of, of Christ and culture— This is really Christ is separated from culture, but Christ is both in the church and working in the culture. So what Keller's going to do in that book is he's going Mm -hmm. to blend the two kingdoms approach and the transformationist approach into kind of best of one, best of the other, a hybrid. Right. I think for our purposes, we just want to give a little bit of the groundwork here to say, how do we think about engaging with the culture? And I think this article from Keller builds on probably the transformationist approach and uh-huh. the two kingdoms approach primarily, although there are groups that are approaching the culture from every one of these angles. Right. I completely agree. You know, as he kicks off the article um, asking the question, you know, should Christians, how do they interact with that two-party system? And I guess the thesis of the article might be a good place to start. He wants to say that Christians should not identify the church or their faith with a political party. And one of the quotes is, he says, and speaking about social issues, he says, the historical Christian positions on social issues do not fit into contemporary political alignments, meaning that uh, you're not going to find the whole package of what you believe in either of our two parties in the two-party system. And so he's going to do something he does a lot, and that is, you might talk about this a little bit, one of his methods that I think has been very successful, although I think you and I both question whether it will continue to be, is he likes to find common ground Yes, and then work from there. Yeah, he's kind of famous for his third-way approach to everything, theologically, socially, in the church, I mean, this is Keller. I mean, I just think a great example is in his book, uh, The Prodigal God, Mm -hmm. where he's talking about the parable of the prodigal son. Uh So he basically says, look, the prodigal son is preached a lot in our in our American churches with a focus on the lost son. Right. Comes back. It's a story of redemption. And he says, well... You know, Jews would have actually heard this and probably leaned towards the older brother being the focus of this. Then at the end of the book, he does this classic third way thing. He says, maybe it's not really either of those. Right. Maybe it's both of those. Mm -hmm. That's Keller. I mean, that's what he does. 
And that's what he's really doing in this article. And like you said, I think he's been really successful in this. Right. I think it's given him a lot of purchase in the culture to speak things that other people don't have the ability to speak. I guess my question on this would be, what do you think he's rebelling against? What do you think he's reacting against in order to write this article? That's a great question. Uh, having a lot of discussions, by the way, with friends of mine and congregants about this very issue, and that is our world has become, and I think we've kind of been a little bit like the frog that gets boiled, you know, slowly, mm-hmm. slowly, slowly. If you just step back and look at it, you realize that today compared to pick any time, 10 years ago, five years ago, almost everything is politicized. That did not used to be the case. It now feels normal that everything that comes up, whether it's a confirmation of a Supreme Court judge or it's a particular social issue or uh, you think, if you stop and think about it, everything becomes a political power struggle. That is not always the way it was. Mm-hmm. Supreme Court justices, to use this example because it happens to be the current uh, uh, maelstrom that we're involved in, used to be that Supreme Court justices, regardless of their ideology, received almost 100 votes. I mean, Mm -hmm. now it's normal, it's considered normal that you might eke out a 51-49 vote. But if you think about it, almost every issue becomes politicized. So what's happened there, to one extent, is we no longer, as uh, Lance Ward observed this in a conversation I was having with him, the difference between a political issue and a moral issue. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think Keller is writing this in response to is Christians getting over-identified with a political party. Trump has kicked that off. But the actually, actually, that's also happening on the other side of the political divide is people over-identifying and beginning to blend their faith, and you can't tell the difference between the faith and the political party. I, I read it as a cautionary note. Yeah, painting with a broad brush, I think that's where he's coming from because, and there's obviously always exceptions to the rules, and you can say one thing about politics and, and then find a counterexample. So right. you, you've seen this a lot lately. You say, oh, well, the Supreme Court nominations didn't used to be this political. People point to you know, whichever one. But if you look at the stats, overall, the votes were a lot more conciliatory than they are now. Well, and, so, and let me just jump on that because in social issues right now, we think, and I would just challenge you, step back and think about this for a moment. I'm going to use a couple of hot button issues. Gay marriage abortion. Why are those federal issues? Why are they not state by state? Education, what kind of bathrooms you have to have in your school, and what kind of programs you have to have in your athletics, why are those federal issues that there's one answer for 50 states? I'm simply saying that's not the only way this can be done, and in fact, it's not the way we typically used to do it. Yeah, well, I'll give you a cynical answer for that. The, the reason it's that way is because it's more politically expedient when you want to get your way. And I think both parties sure. have probably done this to a certain extent. But especially if you look at social issue reform over the last 50 years since the mm-hmm. civil rights movement, the reason why these things are becoming national issues is because if you have states that are differing, not only does it create some practical difficulties when you go from state to state to state and you have different rules about um, race, about sex, about right. all of those things. But in addition to that, what, what I think has come up to the fore right now, and this really, and I don't use this term lightly, this really is a constitutional crisis in the sense that we aren't sure 
about how the federal court system should interact with the states. Right. What we're doing right now is if you're the ACLU or if you're the Alliance Defending Christian Freedom or whatever side you're on and you want to um, legislate, mm-hmm. since our legislature is broken, what you do is... You take a case that should be a state case. So take, for example, the Colorado cake baking case. Right. That should be a state case. But what you had there was a state government who was way out of line, way ideologically opposed According to, to the Supreme Court ruling. They to the said they are way out of line. And so what they do is then they appeal that ruling in such a way that it becomes a federal case. Right. So that's why the Supreme Court is so important, is because everything is going to be thrown into the Court of Appeals past the state level to get to the federal level. And this is where you have like trial hawking, where the ACLU is waiting for a case that fits the criteria that will be able to ascend beyond just the state level up to the federal level. And run it through a jurisdiction that's favorable. And the point I'd make at how does this uh, uh, connect with what we're talking about, when you think about the models you just said, for example, the transformative model, I as a Christian go into my day-in, day-out world, soccer games on Saturday with the kids and work during the week and whatever, and I begin to transform the society. The problem for that model at the moment is the big decisions on the issues I'd like to transform are no longer quote, local, whether that's local or state. They are federal. They are far away from me. And so it's easy to then say, hey, Christian, that's an ineffective way of doing it. You need to run through the political process to do it. And that's where I hear Keller sending a cautionary note is, wait a moment. If you go down that road, you end up having your faith co-opted by a political party. I think that's right. I think that that's probably where Keller is aiming this. I think there's a lot of things tied up in this, and one of the things that you mentioned is the principle of subsidiarity, and there's a lot being written on this. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of good books on this, a lot of good commentators on this, but the fact of political legislation happening on multiple levels is kind of part and parcel with the American dream, is that we have local governments, we have state governments, we have federal governments, and we could get into the whole political strategy behind how the federal government is set up, how it's evolved, obviously the rise of bureaucracy in Washington. But I just want to point to one thing that I think is in the back of people's minds, especially where we live in the South, and maybe not as close to people's minds in places like New York is, one of the reasons that people are so angry when it comes to political parties is because not only have the political processes been exported to Washington, but they've been decided by an increasingly small number of people in Washington. So the two examples would be the Supreme Court, first and foremost. The reason that this is such a hotly contested issue is there is literally one person who's going to decide a lot of the future legislation in America because of the way, as we just talked about, things have been escalated through the courts as opposed to through the legislature. So it is life and death for the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to go one way or the other because if he's the swing vote, and your legislation is going through the judicial system, there is one person who's going to be making this decision. And the same is true when President Obama was in office and he was writing those dear colleague letters. So instead of going through education reform or instead of allowing the states to do whatever they decided in their local legislatures, what his administration did was issue these letters that said, hey, 
the federal government highly suggests, and by suggest yes. we mean we're threatening you with a loss of your federal funds, right. that you do X, Y, and Z when it comes to Title IX and civil rights and bathroom issues right. and that kind of thing. So part of the reason I think that we react so strongly is that we identify the localization of power with a political party on a very, very small level. The fact that right. President Obama was a Democrat means that that's what we're going to get from Democrats. Or, if on the flip side, the fact that Brett Kavanaugh is a conservative or Republican means yes. that that's what we're going to get from Republicans. So you see yourself then not as fighting an ideological battle even, not even, not even as fighting a group of people, but you are fighting this political party for what you believe in. Right. And that escalation has brought us to a place where it does seem like, and this is what I think Keller's pushing back on, you have to throw your entire weight behind a party. Yes. No matter what that party believes because of what you're opposed to. Right. I think it, and it even gets more insidious than that. So and just to map out hearing what you just said is basically, as a Christian, then you get engaged in this process to make a difference on issues that you believe are biblically that are true and right and lead to human flourishing, to use a common phrase today. And when you get into it, you realize that Keller calls it a package deal. Like, wait a minute, this party won't let me in and won't let me work with them on an issue. I need to be signed up for the whole thing. And then, and that in and of itself is something that Keller's pushing back. But you and I heard Jonah Goldberg speak recently, and he talks about this going one more step which is completely uh, toxic to Christians, and yet it's easy to take this next step. He said, when you get to the point where the ends justify the means, in other words, the rightness of your cause can be used to justify pretty much any means to get there, which no Christian sitting here today would agree with that. But as you get identified with the party and you are against the evil of the other side or the wrongness of that, then you begin to slip into means to justify the rightness of the end. He said once you start down that road, pretty soon the means themselves become ends. And what he meant was is that sometimes you do mean things, bad things to the other party to achieve what you want. And if you aren't careful, just doing bad things to the other party is a good thing in and of itself. Yeah. And every time I hear that, I can't hear anything else except the words of Jesus when he said to his disciples, the day will come when you will be persecuted and you will be killed and people are think they are doing a good thing by doing that to you. Mm -hmm. And so I realize I'm, I'm a little off track here going a little farther than where you went, but that road leads nowhere good. You know, jumping in bed, if you will, with that strange bedfellow, a political party, takes you places we probably don't want to go. And I do hear Keller warning us about that. If we were to summarize that, I think it's probably a matter of saying you can be a Christian and be any political party. Yeah. Maybe 100 years ago, maybe 200 years ago. To, in the last 30 or 40 years, you can be a Christian and be a Republican. To now, you can be a, a Christian and you can't be anything. Right. Be and, and, and it's a lot of what we've talked about because there isn't the freedom now to be a certain political party and not accept that everything that they believe is now your new company line. I just remember the, the, the time that that shifted in my mind was 
in the Obama administration when he ran for office, and they decided that you had to endorse abortion to be a Democrat. Right. So in order to have other Democrats support you, in order to get campaign money, there were a set of ethical issues that you had to advocate for. Abortion, gay marriage, and several other things. Mm -hmm. Beyond what I would consider properly political things, which would be things like foreign policy, economic policy, uh, the way the government works, you know. How to attack uh, injustice and poverty, et cetera. Absolutely. Those things became part of the Democratic platform. And in my mind, it would be very hard to be a Democrat if that's the situation you're in, is a question. Well, what's happened in the last four years is the Republicans, not to be outdone, have basically done the same thing. Right, exactly. Now, I think there's still something to be said for the nature of the issues that both of these parties are advocating, but they're really not doing different things. I think it's a little bit of a smear to say that if you're a Republican, you must be sympathetic to racists, for example. Right. As you often hear. Everybody that's everybody that supported Trump is a racist. Well, I don't I don't believe that. But I also don't believe that every single person who identifies as a Democrat wants abortion on demand at every opportunity right. either. But what's happened is there are certain policies that have been enacted in both of these parties that make you complicit in things that probably as a Christian you really can't be complicit in. If you're, right. if we're talking about your conscience. So with that as the background, now Keller comes out and says, partially because of social issues on one hand, and then uh, justice and civil rights and and all of that on the other hand, we shouldn't be aligning with political parties at all. We shouldn't be identifying the church that way. He doesn't go this far, but I wonder if he thinks that individuals should identify themselves in political parties. Right. That's a good question. What did you think? Here's a question I had for you. He basically said one of the reasons for that, he lists out three major reasons, but one is that most or many political positions are not really biblical commands. Some are, but many are not. They are more a matter of practical wisdom. Mm-hmm. For example, he uses a, uh, an example of Christians would agree that we need to help the poor that we are in favor of justice. Let's just stick with the poverty for a moment. But Christians could disagree, and the Bible is not clear about whether that should be done with small government and letting the capital markets work, or a big government and a more socialistic model. He said really some of the most heat comes from things that are not really biblical commands. They are really more a matter of how you would go about it. How do Christians uh, interact in that? Would you agree with his assessment? Well, when it comes to that, I think what you're seeing is a pushing towards the margins on both sides of that. So, right. For example, the the far left and the popular left now is embracing socialism in a way that I don't really think you needed to embrace as a Democrat 50 years ago, even during the New Deal. Oh, There's a big difference between the Works Progress Administration and a call for socialism that you see from some of the candidates for the Senate and the House of Representatives on the new far left. Right. But at the same time, I wonder if pushing the other direction should be troubling us a little bit too, where instead of just embracing kind of a capitalist, in in the classic sense, a liberal form of economic policy, now we're given the situation where you have to endorse individual and corporate greed in order to be a capitalist. And I just don't think it has to be that way. I completely agree. And if you need any convincing of that, just look at the uh, issues that are going on around Google 
Facebook, to a lesser extent Twitter, how much information they have gathered and the ethical way or unethical way they have used that information, the power that they can wield. And so I agree with you. If I were on the liberal side of this, I'd say that is a very dangerous thing. And so you're right. If you're on the conservative side, do I really want to go all out and say lazy fair, almost mm-hmm. libertarian, when I realize that these capitalist entities do not have a conscience? And so you're right. I think we should be concerned on both sides of this. So probably to summarize Keller's point here, I, I think my biggest takeaway was I think it's right to rebel against uniting the church as an entity with a political party. So where I would share his pushback is I don't think what the religious right has become is particularly Christian. I don't think that, and, I, and I'm not criticizing the, the beginnings of the religious right necessarily. I think uh-huh. there's a lot of people that have done a lot of good things. I mean, I, I really admire James Dobson. Mm-hmm. I think he's done a lot of good work. I would probably disagree with him on some things that he said about Trump. Right. But in general, I think what started out as a pretty good movement has become something that's sold out to political idolatry. Right. And so I would agree with Keller if we have reduced the church to a voting block. Right. That is an unhelpful and uh, misguided approach to the way that we engage with politics. I remember the article that he wrote several months ago about what does it mean to be an evangelical. And he basically pointed out, well, evangelical used to mean that you had certain doctrinal commitments. Now it means that you have certain political commitments. Exactly. I think that's extremely unhealthy. Right. The other thing that I would point out with this article is I agree with his pushback from that standpoint. And I thought it was a really nice observation that he made about package deal ethics. Yes. But that that is something that all Christians should be paying attention to is that it's really like if you give a mouse a cookie right now. (laughs) If you go in on a certain issue, are you going to be required to demonstrate your fidelity to the party, your fidelity to the cause by advocating other ethical issues that that party Affirms. I agree. But I just want to step back and commend you for bringing in such scholarly work to this podcast. <laughs> if you've never read the children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, it is extremely profound, and it's right. If you give a mouse a cookie, he will want a glass of milk. And you're right. It just is a daisy chain of pulling you in. That's I agree completely with that. Over the next few podcasts, one of the things I wanted to talk about was some of our heroes in the faith. Mm-hmm. So maybe to give a, a short bio or some things that you really appreciate about somebody that you look up to in the faith. So I thought it'd be good to let you kick us off. Talk, tell us about one of your heroes in the faith. Well, I picked uh, John Wesley, but not really for theological reasons. In other words, uh, I, I, had, uh, I don't agree with John Wesley on everything, but I admire John Wesley for several things. And let me tell you what they are. First, he lived in the 1700s. And to understand his situation very briefly, you basically have the Church of England, Anglican Church, and it had become uh, really stale. It had been no transformation in people's lives. I mean, there are startling parallels to the 21st century here, mm-hmm. by the way, but leave that for another time. He basically, and others with him, started a revival, if you will, in England to say, wait a minute, let's go back to biblical Christianity, the kind of Christianity that changes our mind, changes our hearts, changes our lives. 
part of the holiness movement. Now, I realize a lot of times we hear the word holy, we think of a holy man, you know, somebody whose behavior is so different. That's really not the idea. The idea is being to set apart to God, to be pursuing God. That in and of itself, as a byproduct, leads to us acting and becoming more and more like Christ. So this idea of holiness is having our faith, having the Holy Spirit, actually transform us to looking more and more over time like Christ. And so John Wesley said, that's not happening. There's, there's no power in the Anglican Church. And so at first he tried to reform that, if you will, and then eventually was pushed out and led a revival movement. And he probably led the greatest revival. It spread then to America, it spread to Europe, and so John Wesley thought of as the father of Methodism. Well, it wasn't so much Methodism as a uh, theology, a particular theology. They simply were called Methodists because they had a certain method of going about living out their faith. And they had these small groups of people who would come together, and they did literally what you and I would call biblical Christianity. They held each other accountable. They asked each other hard questions. They encouraged each other. They had expectations that they would all continue to earnestly follow Christ, and that would bear fruit in their lives. Right now, that sounds like, yeah, that's that's what Christianity is supposed to be. But at the time, it was really a new idea. In other words, it was a revival, a reformation. John Wesley just exploded along with many others. Uh, Whitfield was another great preacher at the time. He was a little more Calvinist, but they were they were hair's breadth apart in that they both felt like, look, putting our faith into action should really change our lives. So John Wesley, from that perspective, what he was able to accomplish by the simple preaching of the word, that the word of Christ will transform your life. And in fact, it must transform your life. So I, I admire John Wesley for that reason. I admire. think a, a, lot of, a lot of Christians today would benefit from studying Wesley. I, I saw an exchange the other day on the difference between being a Christian and being Christian. And mm. it's among Wesleyans, among you know, relatively liberal Christians that you can be you can be a Christian if you say a prayer. Right. But there's a difference between being Christian. Well that's a that's a distinction that Wesley would have rejected. Right. That there is no such thing as being a Christian without being Christian. Right. In fact one of my favorite things about Wesley was his sermon almost Christian. Yes. I think every Christian in America would do well to read that sermon and see the significant stance that he takes on what it means to be Christian in his world then, in our world now. Well, and that sermon is interesting when you read it. He's up front. He's not harsh. In fact, Wesley is very much love as a part of that transformative part of Christian life. And my friend Cliff Sanders mentioned to me that after he preached that sermon, he was asked not to come back. Mm -hmm. It starts out by saying, you think you are a Christian, but let me tell you what it looks like to be almost Christian. Mm -hmm. And it was that push for holiness. It was that push for letting love rule our lives, letting us become more like Christ. There's a story in his life, and I know there are a lot of generous people out there, but there's a story in his life that I think is so illustrative to me. This doesn't have anything to do with his theology. It has nothing to do with you're a Wesleyan, you're a Calvinist, you're an Anglican, you're a Presbyterian. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with Wesley's core commitment of living like Christ lived. He, uh, as a young man, he was single at this time. He began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money to give to the poor. His records, he was a 
prolific diarist. His records show that one year his income was 30 pounds, lived in England, and his living expenses were 28 pounds, so he had two pounds to give away. His records show the next year his income doubled. He was preaching, he began to write tracts and that kind of thing, and uh, but he still lived on 28 pounds, so he had 32 pounds to give to the poor. The third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds, but instead of letting his expenses rise with his income, he kept them to 28 pounds, and he gave away 62 pounds. In other words, he was so concerned about storing up treasures in heaven and not on earth. He was not living in poverty. He simply said, well, I as a single man, I can live on 28 pounds a year. Well, I can store up the rest of the treasure in heaven, and I can help the poor. Mm -hmm. So even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds as he became really famous. He lived simply and gave away his surplus money. One year, his income was a little over 1,400 pounds, but he still lived on 30 pounds, and he gave away almost everything. Now, I don't say that to say, oh, isn't he an awesome person? I simply say, Wesley not only preached the truth and told people to do it, he lived that same truth, and he said, my faith is making me so countercultural because I'm going to live out this faith and become more like Christ. I just think in our uh, culture that is really absorbed with money, that just stands out to me to say, and, and whatever your theology may be, that's putting your faith into practice. I love that story. Yeah, I always admire that story about Wesley and Desiring God had a, had a great story they put out a couple of years ago on his birthday about the fact that he died with two silver spoons. Those were their only valuable possessions. A guy that was, by all accounts, could have been one of the most wealthy people in England um, only had two silver spoons when he died. And I just love that kind of generosity. Oh, I do too. And, and really, the idea would be that was a part of putting his faith into action. He didn't mm -hmm. have his own jet stream uh, jet. He didn't you know, live a lavish lifestyle. And wow, what a powerful witness that was. So for those out there that want to get to know a little bit more about John Wesley, uh, any resources you'd suggest or any places to start looking? I would. There are good little biographies, which are interesting. But you know what I use more often is Wesley's collected sermons. He has so many sermons, and they're numbered. And so I happen to have an edition. didn't cost very much. You can just get on Amazon or Google and look for Wesley's collected sermons. It organizes them by number, but then it has a little cross-index by topic. Now, he taught scripturally, not topically, but he taught passages of Scripture that talked about generosity, that talked about uh, walking the Christian life, that talked about the Holy Spirit. It'll say that's number 14, it's number 17. So I find just, I use it simply to read a sermon every now and then. It's just a, a sermon from a time gone by in a style that we no longer have, but seems to have so much meat in it. So I would just recommend getting the collected sermons and read them occasionally. Yeah, his letters, his diaries, there's a, mm -hmm. there's a great set of of uh, his papers and sermons and things we'll link to in the in the uh, bio on this episode. But I would also suggest the Wesley on the Christian Life by Fred Sanders is yes. really good. That whole series is excellent. And Sanders at Biola is a first-rate scholar, but the book is readable, enjoyable, gives you a great glimpse that, into Wesley's That's Wesley a great life. suggestion. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.